0: Welcome to the June 30th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, we review a novel strategy for overcoming resistance to CAR T-cell therapy that involves the dual targeting of myeloma cells and cancer-associated fibroblasts. We'll also explore a recent report demonstrating that loss of CCR4 expression is common after treatment of CTCL with the antibody CCR4 antibody mogamilizumab. Finally, we review real-world data demonstrating an association between corticosteroid exposure and risk of vaso episodes in patients with sickle cell disease, providing further evidence that steroids should be avoided in this setting. Let's start by reviewing a research article entitled Targeting Cancer Associated Fibroblasts in the Bone Marrow Prevents Resistance to CAR T Cell Therapy in Multiple Myeloma by Riona Sakamura and co authors at the Mayo Clinic. CAR T cell therapy has emerged as a potent and potentially curative treatment approach for selected hematologic malignancies. For patients with relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma, a single infusion of CAR T cells directed against B Cell Maturation Antigen, or BCMA, produced complete remission rates of 80% to 100%, leading to FDA approval of this treatment approach in March of 2021. However, progression-free survival is less than two years, with most patients eventually relapsing due to loss of CAR T cells and inhibition of CAR T cell function in the tumor microenvironment. One prominent component of that tumor microenvironment is an abundance of cancer-associated fibroblasts, or CAVs, which are known to be immunosuppressive and to promote tumor growth. Thus, targeting CAFs is a potentially useful anti-cancer strategy. One particularly promising target that has emerged is fibroblast activation protein, or FAP, which is overexpressed on the surface of CAFs. In preclinical studies to date, strategies to target CAFs with monoclonal antibodies or cellular therapy have yielded promising efficacy results. The suboptimal outcomes of CAR T-cell therapy, coupled with the success so far with targeting a suppressive component of the tumor microenvironment, raises a few compelling questions. Are CAFs contributing to CAR T-cell dysfunction? And if so, could that dysfunction be reversed by directly targeting CAFs? With those questions in mind, Sakamura and co-investigators studied the impact of CAFs on the efficacy of CAR T-cells and explored some new strategies for directly eliminating CAFs. They found that, yes, CAFs do inhibit the antitumor activity of BCMA CAR T cells in vitro. The authors then used a mouse model of myeloma in which the human OPM2 cell line was injected into NSG mice. The cell line expressed luciferase, which allowed accurate measurement of tumor volume. The authors then showed that CAR T cells targeting the BCMA protein were effective at suppressing growth of the myeloma cells in these mice. In contrast, when human calves from myeloma patients were co-injected with the BCMA CAR T cells, the mice developed significantly higher levels of tumor and had shorter survival compared to mice receiving only BCMA CAR T cells. Similar results were seen with a second human myeloma cell line, MM1S. The authors then sought to determine if the calves could be inhibited or deleted in vitro and in vivo, arguing that this could improve the efficacy of CAR T cell therapy. They chose to use a separate CAR T-cell to try to deplete bone marrow calves. First, however, they wanted to characterize the immunophenotype of the bone marrow calves isolated from myeloma patients. As expected, flow cytometric analysis revealed high levels of FAP expression. However, they also identified, for what is believed to be the first time, significant expression of SLAM F7. By contrast, there was no expression of FAP or SLAM F7 on healthy donor cells. Next, they generated CAR T-cells that were specific to FAP, as well as CAR T-cells specific to SLAM F7. In vitro, both the FAP and SLAM F7 CAR T-cells had a potent cytotoxic effect against bone marrow calves. However, these FAP and SLAM F7-specific CAR T-cells were ineffective in a mouse model of myeloma that incorporated injected calves. The authors then generated two types of bispecific CAR T-cells, both designed to target malignant plasma cells and calves. One was directed to both BCMA and FAP, while the other was directed to BCMA and SLAM-F7. Both of these had enhanced activity as compared to single-targeted BCMA-directed CAR T-cell therapy, and both were able to overcome bone marrow-calf-mediated inhibition of CAR T-cell therapy, leading to prolonged overall survival. In a commentary, Michael Hudasek and Hermann Einsela of the University Hospital of Würzburg, Germany, said that these, quote, beefed up CAR T's, unquote, will have a bright future if the preclinical data are corroborated by subsequent clinical investigations. Hudusek and Einsula said the dual-targeting approach represents a radical, simple, and effective application of CAR T-cell therapy to eliminate CAFs in the bone marrow niche. The expression of SLAMF7 on those calves came as a surprise, the commentary author said, given that SLAMF7 expression is highly restricted to the hematopoietic system and is notably present on malignant plasma cells in myeloma. Dual targeting of BCMA and SLAMF7 thus has the appeal of increased therapeutic pressure upon myeloma cells through the elimination of myeloma-associated calves. Although the current work is promising, further investigations are needed to determine the efficacy of dual targeting strategies in eliminating myeloma in the bone marrow, extramedullary lesions, and CNS. Furthermore, safety needs to be characterized. Translation to the clinic should proceed with caution. According to Sakamura and colleagues, given that dual-targeted CAR T-cells could be more activated and therefore increase the incidence of life-threatening cytokine release syndrome, or neurotoxicity. For now, however, the results of Sakimura and co-investigators are promising, illuminating a novel approach to developing more potent CAR T-cells that could be applied not only in myeloma, but in other malignancies where CAR T-cell resistance is mediated by the tumor microenvironment. Next, let's review a brief report entitled, Resistance to Mogamilizumab is Associated with Loss of CCR4 in Cutaneous T-Cell Lymphoma. In this report, Sarah Beiji of Stanford University and co-authors report that loss of CCR4 expression is common among patients who have been treated with mogamilizumab and that CCR4 mutations and deletions emerge in a subset of treated patients. We know that cutaneous T-cell lymphomas are rare and incurable non-Hodgkin lymphomas that arise from clonal proliferation of skin-homing T lymphocytes. About two-thirds of CTCL cases are either mycosis fungoides, the most common type overall, or cesary syndrome, an aggressive leukemic variant. Treatment of advanced CTCL is challenging despite the availability of FDA-approved therapies. Overall response rates for these agents are in the range of 30%, with most patients requiring an alternative therapy within a year after starting treatment. Chemokine receptor type 4, or CCR4, is a skin-homing receptor expressed preferentially on subsets of T-cells. Once activated by chemokine ligands, CCR4 expression promotes migration of T-cells to the skin. Of note, CCR4 is upregulated almost universally in CTCL, making it a logical target for treatment with mogamilizumab, a humanized anti-CCR4 monoclonal antibody. In a randomized phase 3 trial, mogamolizumab was superior to vorinostat in both response rate and the primary endpoint of progression-free survival. However, even patients with complete response to mogamolizumab eventually developed resistance, with just 11% of patients having a response that lasted 12 months. It is known that CCR4 is frequently mutated in both mycosis fungoides and cesary syndrome, with gain-of-function mutations noted in particular. However, the exact mechanisms of resistance to mogamolizumab have not been thoroughly investigated. Beijing and colleagues studied 17 patients with CTCL seen at Stanford's Cutaneous Lymphoma Clinic, who received treatment with mogamolizumab and later discontinued the antibody due to lack or loss of response. CCR4 protein expression was evaluated by immunohistochemistry and flow cytometry. Tumor or germline DNA was purified, and targeted sequencing was performed with a panel that included full coverage of CCR4 exonic regions. Antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity assays were also performed. The study included a total of 17 patients who progressed, including 11 patients who were primarily refractory to ab treatment and 6 who developed secondary resistance. 14 of the patients in this cohort had a diagnosis of cesary syndrome, and the remaining 3 had mycosis fungoides. The median duration of treatment with mogamilizumab was 3.5 months, with a range of 2 to 41 months. Investigators found that CCR4 expression was absent by immunohistochemistry in post-treatment specimens for 8 out of 14 patients evaluated including both primary refractory patients and those with secondary resistance. In two cases, pretreatment biopsies confirmed that CCR4 expression was intact before the patient started mogamulizumab. Flow cytometry results were similar, showing surface expression of CCR4 that was decreased or absent in post-treatment specimens. Targeted DNA sequencing revealed novel coding CCR4 mutations in three cases, none of which were detectable in pretreatment samples. Notably, these mutations were distinct from C-terminal gain-of-function mutations previously described in CTCL and adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma. One variant overlapped with the known N-terminal mogamolizumab binding epitope, while the others were in transmembrane domains. All three variants were associated with loss of CCR4 expression on the cell surface. Two of the mutations were shown to markedly impair antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity in the presence of mogamulizumab. There is a short sidebar to the story. Investigators identified three CTCL patients who harbored the previously described C-terminal gain-of-function mutations in CCR4. Among patients with adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma, these mutations are associated with improved clinical outcomes following mogamulizumab treatment. However, response was not consistent in these CTCL patients with gain-of-function mutations. One patient had a durable response, while the other two had no clinical response at all. In an accompanying commentary, Christian Querfeld from the City of Hope Medical Center in Duarte, California, said this work expands our understanding of resistance to mogamulizumab in CTCL related to loss or decreased expression of CCR4 and impaired ADCC. However, Querfeld said additional, larger studies are needed to evaluate mechanisms of resistance to mogamylizumab in CTCL, particularly among patients with mycosis fungoides, who represented only a minority of subjects in this study. Although the present study provides insights on resistance mechanisms, CCR4 mechanism of action is likely to be more complex, she added, since targeting CCR4 can have immunomodulatory effects. Ultimately, she said, combination regimens may be needed to overcome resistance to mogamilizumab. While further work is needed, the findings of the present study by Beji and colleagues indicate that resistance frequently includes loss of CCR4 expression and, in some cases, the emergence of CCR4 genomic alterations. Those findings could have practical implications for next-generation CCR4 targeting therapies under development. In particular, loss of CCR4 expression under selective pressure of CCR4-targeted therapy could be a major hurdle for the development of subsequent CCR4-targeted approaches. The final article, entitled Risk of vaso Episode After Exposure to Corticosteroids in Patients with Sickle Cell Disease, is from Andine Walter of Toulouse University Hospital in France and co-authors. In this study of real-world data, the investigators used a somewhat novel study design to ask if steroid use was definitively linked to increased risk of vaso-occlusive event-related hospitalization. Sickle cell disease is the most common monogenic disease worldwide, affecting approximately 300,000 newborns every year. The recurrent pain episodes, known as vasoocclusive episodes, or VOEs, contribute to the morbidity and mortality in patients with sickle cell disease, and are in fact the most frequent cause of care-seeking among these patients. There are some risk factors for VOEs, such as infection and hypoxemia, that are well-known and well-described. By contrast, exposure to oral or injectable corticosteroids has been suspected to increase VOE risk, though this is based on limited data from several case reports and case series. Corticosteroids are widely available and have potent anti-inflammatory effects, so they seem like a logical choice for treating severe complications of sickle cell disease, at least in theory. However, the use of corticosteroids in the treatment of patients with sickle cell disease is debated. In randomized trials, corticosteroids reduced length of hospital stay and need for red blood cell transfusions. However, in subsequent retrospective studies and case series, corticosteroid use was associated with VOEs as well as stroke. In another systematic review and meta-analysis just published in 2022, which includes three randomized controlled studies and three retrospective studies, corticosteroids were linked to increased risk of hospital readmission in patients with sickle cell disease and acute complications. Despite mounting evidence, the debate over the use of corticosteroids in sickle cell disease continues, and owing to a lack of clear guidance, corticosteroids are still widely prescribed in these patients. Accordingly, Walter and colleagues sought to assess linkages between corticosteroid use and risk of VOE-related hospitalizations among patients with sickle cell disease in a new study from France. The study, which drew from the French National Health Insurance System database, included all adult and pediatric sickle cell disease patients with at least one hospitalization for VOE, starting in 2010 and going through 2018. The study incorporated what's called a case-case time control design. This is an extension of a case crossover study design. The case-case time control design incorporates an adjustment cohort to account for temporal variations in the exposure of interest, which in this study was exposure to corticosteroids. Investigators used a matched cohort of what they described as future cases, or patients with VOE the year after. Two concomitant case crossover studies were conducted, one among cases and one among future cases. They calculated the ratio of odds ratios, that is to say, odds ratio of cases over odds ratio in future cases. In that way, they could obtain an odds ratio for the effect of corticosteroids exposure on VOEs by taking into account the exposure trend. Investigators identified more than 14,000 patients with sickle cell disease who were hospitalized for VOEs over the 2010 to 2018 period. The total number of hospitalizations exceeded 100,000, translating into 0.78 VOEs per patient year. 13% of hospitalizations were in intensive care units. The median duration of hospital stay for VOE was three days. Out of the overall patient population, investigators selected approximately 5,000 cases and 5,000 future cases for the principal analysis. 45% of cases were exposed to systemic corticosteroids at least once between 2010 and 2018. The systemic corticosteroids were oral in 95% of cases. The median time between corticosteroid dispensing and date of hospital admission was 5 days. The outcome of the study was first hospitalization for VOE. The principal analysis showed an increased risk of hospitalization for VOE following exposure to systemic corticosteroids outside the hospital. The adjusted odds ratio was 3.8, with a 95% confidence interval of 2.4 to 5.6. The strength of the association varied by sex, age, and exposure to hydroxyurea. In women, the adjusted odds ratio for hospitalization was 6.5 versus 2.1 in men. Dispensing of corticosteroids was more prevalent among women than men, with about 62% of prescriptions going to women, and more than 51% of hospital stays were among women. In adults, the adjusted odds ratio for hospitalization was 4.5 for adults and just 2.8 for children. In patients exposed to hydroxyurea, the odds ratio was 2.6, as compared to 4.0 in patients not exposed to hydroxyurea. In a commentary, Sophie Lanscron and Lydia Pecker of Johns Hopkins School of Medicine said the present study is a rigorous and novel approach to demonstrating the association between corticosteroid use with subsequent VOE. They said that Walter and colleagues have provided a meaningful contribution to a growing body of evidence, suggesting that Quote, extreme caution is warranted when prescribing systemic corticosteroids to individuals with sickle cell disease. They added that in situations where corticosteroid is absolutely needed, it is essential to involve a healthcare provider with expertise in sickle cell disease. In our experience, they write, well meaning clinicians prescribe corticosteroids for seemingly reasonable indications. This comes to our attention when those treatments precipitate what are often very severe VOEs. Altogether, the results of the study by Walter and colleagues provide substantial new evidence that systemic corticosteroids are associated with increased risk of hospitalization for VOE. According to the investigators, this indicates the use of systemic corticosteroids should be limited in patients with sickle cell disease. Further research is needed to understand the apparent differences in hospitalization risk across patient subgroups, such as women versus men, to identify potentially targetable mechanisms, and to assess the role of potential interventions, such as the use of prophylactic transfusion to mitigate corticosteroid-associated VOE. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.